Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to Reliability Matters. I'm so glad you're here with me today. This is actually take two. All full disclosures and my apologies to my guest. We started off two questions deep and I realized I hadn't hit the record button. A very rookie mistake. I feel like I owe it to you to uh, confess my digital sins. Dave Trail is my guest today. He's worked for companies in, uh, including uh, Aegis Industrial Software, uh, Scan, Critical Manufacturing, uh, all with a common theme of connected factories, which brought him to Arch Systems, where Dave is currently vice president of sales. Arch Systems, just for background, uh, works with top-tier global manufacturers to extract data from machines and drive uniform metrics for enhanced productivity and predictive analytics. They focus on electronics manufacturing, supply chains, digitizing both greenfield and brownfield technologies. So it's my privilege to once again welcome Dave to the program. Thanks, Dave, for doing this again. A little deja vu here. Huh? Our audience won't experience that, but a little deja vu for you and me. So Good to see you again, Mike. Good to see you again. Yeah, now I have to change my whole script. I have seen Last time I saw you was about 40 seconds ago. Uh, so um, one of the things that I read in, in, in introducing you was uh, two terms that I'd never heard before. And just when I think I've heard everything at least once or twice, all of a sudden I realized I'm not ready to retire yet because there's still things I don't know. And that is the term greenfield and brownfield factories. Um, they may make perfect sense to many people, uh, much of my audience. I'd never heard of that term before. So uh, help me understand uh, in your world what that means. Okay. So in, in my world, in, in my understanding, a uh, greenfield site would pertain to a brand new facility. Let's say a company was doing production in the United States, China, and Europe, but wanted to build a factory in Mexico. And they started from scratch by constructing a building or buying a building and putting brand new equipment and processes within that building. That would be considered a greenfield site. A site that has been in production for a while, that has already existing processes, uh, existing equipment, maybe existing software, that's what we would consider a brownfield site. So kind of a, a very industry-specific way of saying newer used, <laughs> repurposed, exactly, yeah. newer repurposed, yeah. Trying to be uh, fancy. <laughs> and by the way, I should point out to my audience that um, uh, aloha is the perfect word to greet you today because you, you live uh, and work from Hawaii, and, uh, uh, and I am in California. So we are spanning the uh, – usually I span the Atlantic Ocean when I talk to guests uh, across any ocean. In this case, it's the Pacific. So aloha, Dave. Uh, Thank you, Mike. You, I've seen you at conferences uh, in the past. The most recent was uh, uh, the Pan Pacific um, Symposium uh, of Microelectronics, uh, published by or produced by SMTA, and that always occurs on one of the Hawaiian islands, usually very early in the year, January or February. I think I saw you there just before all the madness broke out in uh, early 2020, uh, and then you were talking about Industry 4.0. Um, and anytime I see interviews of you, when I did some research, it's always on that same subject of connected factories and, and digitizing information and things like that. So what brought you into, of all the different segments within the electronic assembly space, what brought you into uh, kind of an expertise uh, in at least selling or marketing or talking about or knowing about Industry 4.0? 
Well, expertise is a tough word, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll stick with that for now. So in the early mid-90s, I got started in SMT. And uh, that's kind of when pick-and-place equipment started becoming mainstream. They were still using mechanical centering jaws, um, laser in the head centering, uh, some camera uh, uh, fiducial controls, et cetera, and they were very, very slow machines, but they were very, very high tech at the time. I remember trying to explain what I did to some of my friends and family, and uh, it was just kind of, you know, those little green things that go inside electronics. I, I helped build those was kind of the, the explanation. So it was very, very high tech and very somewhat cutting edge. And then over time, that evolved, and uh, pick and place became more mainstream. Uh, the technology got faster, more accurate, components got smaller. There were changes in things like flux chemistries for solder paste that made things more efficient, went to no clean. Then AOI kind of came on board, and at first that didn't really work. It was just kind of a very expensive conveyor. And then that started to work, and then probably about 10 years ago or so, I was standing around at one of the trade shows, and I was looking around at that particular year. There really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, really granular, cutting-edge innovation taking place. I mean, there was, there was little improvements that were, that were happening, but kind of everybody could place components on boards. Everybody could solder components. Uh, you know, their reflow ovens, they all worked. And I noticed the equipment was kind of becoming commoditized. And at the time, there was some uh, rumors or some talks about uh, the standard called, well, they called it a standard, called Industry 4.0 out of Germany. And that was all, you know, kind of new and seemed cutting edge. And I thought it was a, a good idea to try to stay on the leading edge of technology. And I, I made a transition from equipment and process into software. And I started working at first with connectivity and then, uh, Know, throughout MES, and now I'm focused particularly on Industry 4.0 and AI and ML for electronics assembly. Excellent. Um, you uh, work for Arch Systems right now. Tell me a little bit more about the, the background of Arch Systems. I know it specializes, uh, at least partially, if not entirely, on connectivity. Um, what, what does Arch Systems do? What type of company are they? What types of products do they offer? Sure. Uh, you know, you mentioned that they focus on connectivity. That was my misconception also when I first started looking at Arch Systems. Um, connectivity is something that Arch does. However, we wouldn't consider that our product. It's, it's a necessary part of the technology that we utilize in order to deliver our true product, which is advanced analytics, uh, AI-based uh, algorithms, machine learning, um, and uh, being able to look at the manufacturing process and utilize all of the data from the factory to uh, improve processes and increase efficiencies within the S&T sector. Excellent. And here's kind of a, a very ignorant question for you. I've often wondered it, but I've always been too embarrassed to ask, but you and I are friends, so I, we can, no, no one's listening. Um, why do they call it Industry 4.0? Was there a 3.5? Was there a 3.0, a 2.0, a 1.0? Uh, where did we, the first time I heard about any kind of connected factory, it started with four. And I'm assuming there was a precursor to it. Are you aware of that or? Yeah, sure. Uh, you did you all just sit around in a room and go four is a cool number? <laughs> well, it was four figures, right? Exactly. So no, no actually, you know, Industry uh, 1.0 started, you know, at the turn of the century. Industry 2.0 had to do with using uh, 
machines and things like that. Industry 3.0, which you may be aware of, even though that uh, occurred in, in the 70s, had to do with using um, electronic control systems, things like PLCs and um, some electrical means to, to drive production um, and improve the process. That's where you started to see things like, um, you know, computerized uh, manufacturing equipment and things like PLC controls and wiring of systems to perform functions that typically were done, you know, either mechanically or through some very um, industrial type uh, machines. It's, it's kind of where, electronics started to take off. Industry 4.0 is the building upon that utilizing data and some of the advanced internet technologies that we use today. So it Industry 4.0 is actually building upon Industry 3.0 and was originally kind of uh, termed and envisioned by uh, the German government um, in, in, in the 80s. So. Um, well, in 2013, I think, is, is finally when they released their papers on it, and it kind of started to become a thing. So it got started in Europe. Okay, very interesting. I did not know that. So many companies, uh, both Arch Systems, uh, in, in some of your promotional videos, uh, talk about this 99% goal of optimization. And, and I hear 99% all the time. You know, we have a 99% safety record. We have a 99% efficiency record. We have... Everyone shoots for 99, and that's really, I think, an awful number. And just to put 99 into perspective, um, you know, I often look at 99 as 99% is like that's the goal we want to reach. But if the, U the U.S. airline industry produces over 5,000 flights a day, actually yesterday there was 5,670 flights in the air, assuming that's not as high as it normally is because we're still recovering from the pandemic. If the airline industry in that, in that particular example – had a safety goal of 99%, then, then uh, oh gosh, uh, how many? Uh, <laughs> uh, 56 of those airplanes would have a safety problem, right? Just 56 of them every day, just based on a 99% um, uh, safety record. Uh, if worldwide the airline industry was satisfied with 99% safety, then over 100 flights a day would be flying unsafely. Who knows what that would, that would come out to. So uh, that... To me, um, that would be ninety nine is a is a just a strange number. It's just some comfort number that people have in their head. It really needs to be, if not a hundred, ninety nine point and several numbers after that point, after that decimal, right? Mm -hmm. To 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 account for scale. So you know, obviously, the last one percent is an exceptionally important number uh, when it comes to large scale manufacturing and. Uh, in a promotional video that was produced by Arch Systems, uh, they, they made a statement, uh, but for manufacturers who think they've achieved 99% uh, efficiency just because they've achieved 99% quality, again, there's that 99% number, uh, they're almost always wrong. In fact, your company stated that uh, it doesn't really exist, this 99% efficiency. That's because no one's ever seen a manufacturer actually running anywhere near 99%. And then you suggest the real numbers uh, could be 60% or as low as 10 to 20%. Um, so where does the data, that data come from? And what leads manufacturers to overestimate their efficiencies? Sure. Yeah, the 99% number is, is something that, um, you know, I've heard for years, you know, you go into factories and you and you talk to the, the plant manager, or sometimes the CEO, and 
they, you know, one of the first things to come out of their mouth is, you know, we, we have 99 or 99.5% quality. What can you do for me to, to improve that? And, you know, that's, there's a lot of companies that do achieve that. Um, it's, it's difficult for some of the, some of them to achieve, but 99% is, is somewhat uh, common within the industry uh, when you're talking about quality. The, the problem is, and the, the topic of the, uh, the paper that you talked about is what's hiding behind that 1% and what did you sacrifice in order to get that 99% quality? We would argue that in order to achieve 99% quality, the majority of manufacturers have slowed down their efficiencies, their productivities, and the, the speed in which they, they run their products, which thus reduces the overall margins and profitability of the company in order to achieve that 99% quality. 99% quality is great, um, but as you mentioned before, there's a lot of companies that are achieving you know, 30 to 40% efficiency, even world-class companies, some of the, the best of the best. Uh, when we look at their numbers and we start breaking down uh, the, the efficiencies that they're seeing on their factories, they're less than 50%, almost all of them. And some of them are, are much, much lower than that. Our goal is to not intrude upon the 99% quality, but also improve the efficiencies and the productivity to a level that approaches 99% as well. The topic is why not achieve both? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, there was a statement made that the uh, 99% efficiencies are kind of hiding in plain sight. Um, sometimes we don't see things that are hiding in plain sight. Engineers tend to, for example, kind of go against Occam's uh, razor theory, where the most obvious uh, answer to, the, to what's being presented is the most obvious answer, right? It's the simplest. Mm -hmm. um, engineers tend to be very critical thinkers, and they dive deep. They get the shovel out, and they, they, they basically shovel out a rabbit hole, and then they go, <laughs> drop down in it when the problem may be somewhere on the surface. So um, what types of efficiencies are, are commonly hiding in plain sight, and what do you think is preventing us from seeing them? Okay, uh, part of that has to do with, as you mentioned before, you know, engineers are very critical thinkers. And a lot of times their ability to focus on a problem is really what makes them great engineers. However, sometimes you need to have that ability to focus, but you also need to have more of a global view of things and then be able to focus in, in particular, on areas uh, where you have hypotheses that there may be an issue. A good example that I have on this um, actually just came across our desk this past uh, couple weeks. We're working with a very large um, electronics manufacturer in the automotive industry. And they came to us to do a proof of concept. They wanted to see if you know we were able to connect all of their pick and place equipment and to be able to provide global KPIs and to be able to look at some of the efficiency uh, ratings of this equipment to make sure that they were getting the most out of their equipment that we could, that they could. And we did that in a very short amount of time. Within three weeks, we were able to demonstrate a, a, a good ROI on that project. And in fact, it, it went so well that they said, all right, so we want to do a stage two proof of concept, if you will. And we want you to connect all of the machines in our SMT lines. And that includes the printers all the way through the ovens and tests, et cetera. And we did that. And that, that's something that happened relatively quickly as well. And 
This manufacturer has plants in China, they have plants in North America, plants in Mexico, and plants in Europe. And we had them all connected. And we were looking at all of the real-time numbers as they were coming in using various dashboards and using some um, advanced analytics algorithms to determine you know, things like uptime, efficiency, et cetera. And what they noticed is in part of their manufacturing process, as, as a product would come out of pick and place and go into their x-ray uh, machine, the x-ray machine would, would obviously take a look at some of the bad parts that were on there. And then the operator would double check that and make sure that th those parts were in fact bad or if uh, there, it was a false call. And in the majority of their plants, they had a staging conveyor um, right by that, that uh, semi-automatic process. And, you know, the, the transfer time uh, for each of these uh, machines was 10 seconds. That's, that's what the transfer time from beginning conveyor to end of conveyor was, was 10 seconds. So that should have been a pretty static number, right? But what they started noticing is in their plant down in Mexico, they were getting uh, you know, a 7% variation in that, meaning it wasn't always 10 seconds. Sometimes it was much more. Sometimes it was a lot less. And they didn't know this, okay? They just noticed that, well, wait a second, we're having a problem here. Maybe we need to cut down the amount of AOI inspections that we're doing, or maybe we need to dumb down the inspection so that we can improve this, this cycle time on these boards to eliminate this, this bottlenecking that was occurring. Because obviously, you don't want your bottleneck to be in your uh, x-ray machines. You want it to be in your pick and place, obviously, because that's the most expensive part of the, of the, of the line. And as we started looking at this, we noticed that variation. Sometimes it was 10 seconds, sometimes it was 17, you know, sometimes it was 24, and they didn't quite know why. And we started looking closely at that with our, our data scientists that we have on board at our systems and their uh, subject matter experts in the SMT area within their, their factory put our heads together and they actually went down to the plant in Mexico. And as they started looking at the process, they're watching the operators go back and forth. And they noticed that um, they had an operator that was managing several different lines at a time. And that's pretty common in our industry because a lot of it is so, so um, you know, operator unintensive and most of it just runs. That the process, their standard standard operating procedure was at a certain point in time, if, if the x-ray gave some type of signal, the, the operator would go over there and do that inspection and make sure that uh, the board was good or bad and have it move on, on its path. And in all of the other factories, they had a staging conveyor okay, that, that would allow these boards to accumulate so the operator could go then and look at those. Okay? And in this particular case, because they didn't have that staging conveyor, that x-ray machine became the bottleneck. And that was something that was right in plain sight in the, the director of manufacturing that we we're talking to. He said, you know what? I actually never noticed that we have staging conveyors at our other factories, but not at this one. So it was a, you know, trees through the forest or forest through the trees type, type approach on this that they simply wouldn't have, have seen if they didn't have access to the data looking at all of the processes on the SMT line itself. Interesting. That is definitely a good example of plain sight. You trip mm -hmm. over it practically, and it only becomes obvious once it's pointed out, right? It's just yeah. one of those things. Mm -hmm. So while Industry 4.0 has been in the public consciousness for, I don't know, a decade now, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit longer or thereabouts, mm -hmm. um, do you think that the industry as a whole has a, a real grasp on the full benefits of Industry 4.0? Uh, in other words, 
do we spend more time talking about the technology behind 4.0, protocols, things like that, versus the benefits of 4.0? I, I hear a lot about the technology and whether it's yeah. you know, CFX or, or other you know, protocols, whatever. I hear a little bit less. Maybe it's just because I'm a geeky guy and I kind of fall into the technology thing, but, but I don't hear as much talk about the benefits of it. Is, is that your perception as well? Yeah, I think that's something that we've been plagued with as an industry. We've been so focused on, you know, the, the how uh, of, you know, how am I going to get this data out of my machines? How am I going to get it into a database or into my MES or, you know, what standard should we have to make all of this much easier? And we've spent, what, four years now working on a standard that is making it easier, but still there's a lot of equipment that are not using the CFX standard. And it'll actually be many years until all of the equipment does have this standard. And there's been a, a lot of focus on that. And because of that, there's been a little bit of tunnel vision and a lot of companies that say, all right, I'm getting the, the data out of my machines. I'm doing industry 4.0. And that's not true. I mean, just because you're collecting some uh, consumption information or traceability information and things like that, and you're seeing some very, very basic uptime, downtime uh, KPIs, that's, that's not really Industry 4.0. Industry 4.0 is, is, is much larger than that. It, it um, is, is doing all of those things and is using all of those technologies, but it's, it's building upon those, providing all of the efficiencies and production capabilities and uh, profitability and productivity um, that builds upon these technologies that we've been focused on for, I, I think, a little bit too long, actually. One of the th good things about Arch is, as I mentioned before, we do do connectivity. However, that's not necessarily our product. Um, we do that because we have to, okay? We're very, very good at it, but honestly, it would be much easier if a lot of other companies, uh, you know, the equipment vendors just supplied it as opposed to us having to, to get it. But the fact is, there's not a whole lot of, out there as far as true connectivity that goes beyond track, trace, and control, and, and traceability, and those types of things to be able to harness this, this type of data. And, um, you know, Arch as a company provides all of those Industry 4.0 benefits, and we're, we're seeing, you know, improvements within our customers to the tune of millions of dollars for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar or less in investment and paying itself off in, you know, a few months as opposed to several years. So you talk about just because a machine collects data, you know, we build cleaning machines, right, to clean circuit mm -hmm. assemblies after reflow. They collect a lot of data. And then we make that data available to our customers through either to go in and grab it out of the SQL server or, you know, ex export it on an Excel spreadsheet or whatever. We think, mm -hmm. you know... I wouldn't say specifically we're 4.0. We're obviously not 4.0. Um, I don't even think they've gotten the cleaners yet. But but um, but it seems like we're part of the way there. But it sounds like we're that's not it at all. Uh, I would imagine part of 4.0 is not just collecting and transmitting data. It's probably also receiving data and and compensating for the data it's receiving. Am I am I correct there? It, it's it's they are a conduit for information, both receiving yeah. and, and transmission. Is, is that right? Yeah, certainly, you know, what you're doing with your, your equipment is you're contributing to Industry 4.0 and you're providing an input into Industry 4.0 as, as, a, as a concept or as, as a goal. 
Um, however, just providing data isn't in itself Industry 4.0. Industry 4.0 is, is a much larger uh, view of that by being able to take that data and data from other pieces of equipment and whether it be, you know, realizing that if you make this change to this machine, um, it will improve this process later later down the line. That's that's part of Industry 4.0. But taking being able to take all of the data, digest it, make it useful, and allow it to, to make the process better, um, that is that is the true part of Industry 4.0 that I think a lot more companies are getting close to these days. Several companies are doing it, but uh, there's still quite a few that that are still caught in the weeds of of worrying about uh, connectivity and things like that. Where there's there's a much uh, bigger bigger fish out there that uh, can be fried. Yeah, it sounds like it's not just the collection and distribution of data; it's the discernment interpretation of data that really yeah. makes it all worthwhile. Otherwise, it's just big data, right? We live in a world of big data, and data mining has become an industry in itself, right? There's just so much yeah. out there, but just the collection of data in itself is, is rather trivial, I, I would guess, right? It's just interesting yeah. information. Yeah, just collecting data for the sake of collecting data doesn't necessarily bring a whole lot of value to anybody, right. at least today. Um, I, I still believe that people should be collecting as much data as they can. Uh, there's a concept out there called dark data. Um, and dark data is truly something that does exist. And what kind of what that means is it's data that's being generated and it can be potentially used at a later date, at a later time. Um, so you should store that data. Um, but just because it's not usable today doesn't mean that it's worthless. It may be usable, you know, in the future and you can't retroactively, you know, create data. It makes more sense to collect it now. Yeah. So all the data that can be collected, the better. Yeah. It's time has not yet come uh, in that dark data example. Yeah. So we talked mm -hmm. about, it's uh, perfect segue. We talked about um, people thinking they might be industry 4.0 and they're just really contributors on the sidelines to 4.0. Are there any other common misconceptions about Industry 4.0 that, that either keep people out of it or keep people resistive to it or maybe suck people in for the wrong reasons? Yeah. From a sales you know, standpoint, I think you're the perfect person to answer this question, right? Because you probably have seen over your career from other sources, obviously, many misrepresentations, whether intentional or, or accidental, of of uh, 4.0. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a long list of, you know, of, of those types of misconceptions, and I'll just touch on a, a couple uh, really easy ones. The first being that uh, data storage is complicated or expensive. Um, cloud storage of data is very, very inexpensive. We're talking to the tune of, you know, a couple terabytes of information per month, not costing hundreds or thousands of dollars. We're talking tens of dollars per month. So the cost of data storage is not complex, it's not expensive, and it's not difficult. Um, the other misconception is that uh, it's it's difficult and uh, that this is a, a major project that um, you know is very overwhelming and very uh, time consuming and very you know intrusive and obstructive and it's going to slow you down and you don't have the time to put into this. Um, one of the things that Arch does that a lot of the other companies that do things similar is we're able to get uh, an entire line or an entire factory connected, not in, day, not in months or weeks, 
but in a matter of hours. Uh, a good example of that is right at the beginning of the pandemic, we were connecting uh, a plant in China, and this is a, a pretty big plant. And we were able to uh, connect, I think it was 196 Fuji machines, uh, Fuji pick and place machines in approximately 10 seconds. Um, it was literally press a button, boom, you're collecting data from all of these pieces of equipment, all brought together, all normalized, all, all merged with all the other data into the cloud um, in a fraction of time. And it didn't uh, shut down the lines. It didn't shut down the operators from doing what they were doing. This was all done completely white glove, uh, touch free. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, excellent. So in an interview you gave back in 2017 uh, with my friend and colleague Phil Stoughton on his scoop TV broadcast, uh, you stated that millennials uh, are slowly gaining entry into management positions, decision-making positions within companies, mm -hmm. which I, I can see that as well. Uh, and to paraphrase something you said, which fascinated me, you said that the difference between the older managers and the millennial, the younger managers, is you know the older managers are surprised uh, to find out that we can connect these machines together and the millennials are shocked to find out they're not connected, right? Yeah. They just expected yeah. they would be. So is there a generational gap uh, when it comes to understanding the benefits of industry 4.0? Yeah. I, the, when I, when I mentioned that, I, I was a little bit concerned when I watched it because I, I didn't want to make it seem like I was calling anybody behind the times or older or, or too young either. Kind of what I was just talking about was just the, the, the frame of thought at the time where, you know, Younger people, you know, they they grew up with technology. They grew up, you know, with computers and things like that. Um, I'm not that young, but I remember in elementary school using computers versus, you know, my father. He probably didn't uh, use his first computer until uh, 70s or 80s or so. Um, and all of these millennials that are coming on board right now, they're they're very digitally savvy and. Electronics manufacturing, while we're building some very complex, complicated, very, very high-tech products, in a certain way, what we're the equipment that's doing this isn't um, it, it really should be connected, is, is how the millennials see it. Meaning, so this machine is doing all of these things and what do you mean I can't get the data out of it? I mean, surely there's a screen on there, surely it's generating data. Um, why why can't you as opposed to um some of the people that you know once again this forest through the trees type of thing is you know they're they've been focused on on uh you know solder paste you know wedding and de-wedding and things like that that you know they're focused upon their particulars as opposed to the the larger uh, view of sure that reflow oven um yes you need to maintain all these uh different zone temperatures and ramp cycles and clean or no clean etc but also there's data being generated in that that can be used within the process. So I, I do think that this um, the deviation that you're talking about that I mentioned in 2017, I think it, I think that that is is evaporating um, as people are becoming more and more attuned to what's what's taking place in the industry. A lot more companies are doing these types of things, and um, there's a lot of education that's taken place over the years and these millennials are moving more and more into management and buying uh, decision uh, makers and the people like you and I that have been around for a while, um, we're looking at the equipment in the industry maybe a little bit differently than we did, you know, three or four years ago too. 
you mentioned earlier, you're a sales and marketing guy, as am I at heart, right? I think all entrepreneurs are sales and marketing guys, right? They're selling themselves, they're selling their passion, their ideas, their dreams, hopes. Um, I, I do definitely see a difference in the way we market to customers today versus 30 years ago when I started my business. And you know, 30 mm-hmm. years ago when I started my business, there was no internet, there was no email. It was, uh, you either mail something, and if you really wanted to make an impression, you FedExed something, right? Because that always gets opened. It gets put on the boss's desk. And mm-hmm. uh, you ran ads in print magazines. You had bingo cards in the magazines. You circle number 132, and a month later, you might get a brochure in the mail. And, and, and now, I can't think of the last time we ran a print ad. Even the way we look at trade shows is different. The, the younger mm-hmm. people are... are I think they enjoy getting their information on their own time in their mm-hmm. own medium and mm-hmm. uh, much less conventional than yeah. in the not too distant past. So it, it's definitely changed the way we market. And, you know, the, the more experienced people, let's call them, in our industry who've been around a while, mm-hmm. um, adapt very quickly. You know, they're, they, mm-hmm. they may, they may, fight the adoption a little bit, but they, they do adapt. So I think the millennials are what kind of what lead the charge in terms of who we cater to, uh, who we mm-hmm. sell to, how we sell to them. And then everyone else kind of catches on. Right. And Certainly. It, it's not like you pull a switch and you instantly stop marketing the old fashioned way. Uh, but, but um, you certainly start graduating toward, toward this. And, and clearly um, I think what will help industry 4.0 get the, the last mile, which is always the hardest, you know, the last 1%, mm-hmm. and to use the analogies mm-hmm. we were using before, um, is having a, an entire generation of people who expect it, who are shocked more that it's not complete rather than shocked that it is as complete as it is. You know, it, it, it's uh, just, they'll pull it. They'll pull it toward them rather than us pushing, pushing it toward a prior generation. Does that make sense? For sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I think... You know, and I have—I wasn't around in the '60s or '70s in, in the industry, um, but I, I think in in a lot of ways those times were the the, the experienced people kind of coaching up the younger people, and you know, teaching them about the industry and taking them under their wing and teaching them yeah. certain things. I think that still occurs in a lot of ways, but I think there's also quite a bit of push from the younger people. Uh, you know, motivating the, the more experienced people as well and, and opening their eyes to, to stuff that, you know, really is, you know, not to use the too technical term, pretty cool, you know? <laughs> I, um, I agree. I totally agree. I think it's a push-pull. It's, it's uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the young pull, the, the um, uh, older, you know, they help lift them up, you know, to that next plateau and, and, uh, and in many cases, the more experience help push up the, the younger. Uh, so it, you know, the, it's just, um, I think it's a yin-yang kind of thing. I think, I think mm-hmm. the industry works because of both. And it's nice to finally, we've talked about this on the show many times before, but it is nice to see kind of a, a mitigation happening for the silver tsunami, you know, for all the uh, experienced mm-hmm. sages finally retiring and, and uh, moving to your island. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> He's like, oh no, um, and it, and younger people coming in to kind of fill those fill those roles. So I hear the term IIoT, Industrial Internet of mm-hmm. Things, and Industry 4.0. Are those synonymous terms, or are they actually quite different from each other? 
I, I wouldn't necessarily call them quite different uh, because they do play in with each other. Um, however, a lot of times they're, they're misused um, and interchanged in a way that they probably shouldn't be. IIoT has to do and speaks about the connectedness of different devices or systems on, on a factory floor um, that are communicating together. Industry 4.0 is is the capitalization or the benefit of all of those devices um, communicating together and, and adding all of it together to have an output. Um, the, I, kind of the way that I would look at that is if if you're um, a, a, if you manufacture engines um, for cars, um, you are in the automobile and industry, but you're not the automobile industry in and of itself. It takes a lot of different players to come together to create the automobile industry. Um, so industry 4.0 is the utilization of multiple different tools, part of which is IIoT uh, to create the benefit for the user and the companies that are that are capitalizing upon it. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. So certain Asian countries have, you know, they're well known to have a, a labor benefit cost wise, right? That's just, that's just the way it is. Not just Asian countries, other countries too, but particularly Asia. Uh, will the efficiencies afforded by industry 4.0 lead to a situation where North American manufacturers can more readily compete with their Asian and other country uh, counterparts? In other words, can industry 4.0 lessen the gap in manufacturing costs between countries? I think so. Um, yeah, many, many years ago, it, you know, companies like in Asia were able to utilize, you know, pure low labor costs to be able to attract business and be able to sell or to produce products at less cost than what you might be able to do in Europe or, or in North America. Over the years, and I've spent a lot of time in Asia over the past few years, and that low labor rate isn't quite, you know, what it was earlier. Um, the, the middle class in, in Asia has really gotten quite expensive and um, even, you know, living in, in certain parts of Asia are as expensive or more expensive than parts of North America and Europe. And what you're seeing over there is they realize that and they realize that their middle class and, you know, their, their population is, you know, evolving and it's becoming a consumer society just like ours. And they're trying to stay ahead of the curve, and they realize that low labor is not going to, you know, carry on forever. And in many ways, they're they're just as on top of this uh, digitization uh, wave as we are. Um, and because they want to keep their production there, and they realize that that it's it's easier to keep it there than try to attract it back again once they digitize their factories. But yes. Um, to, to answer your question, I think as companies become more efficient, uh, more productive, uh, they're able to improve their utilizations and the profitabilities of their companies and lower the cost uh, to produce goods. Certainly, I do believe that uh, products will move back to you know Europe or North America, and I think we're already seeing that uh, today. Um, and we're also seeing that some of the the you know production of, of certain products that were historically done in China due to these lower labor rates, um, they're moving out of China because the labor rate isn't 
is it as economical as it was before? I think we probably face a bigger challenge, not um, on labor versus labor or, or product versus product, but it's in supply chain and being able to get get the components or the raw materials necessary to build these parts um, in this part of the world where it's there's entire supply chains that have been built up over the past 20 years in Asia uh, that have been sacrificed over here. You're seeing that right now in the semiconductor space. And um, a lot of uh, countries are, are really looking at that saying, well, wait a second, you know, we, we're closing down sem semiconductor fabs um, and we need to reinvest, you know, to the tune of billions of dollars to build a new semi-fab um, in our country because we, we we don't want to have to worry about trying to find it on the other side of the world. Yeah, same can be said for rare earth minerals and things like that, too. We shut down all the mines because yeah. we, we had someone else that could do it cheaper. And then it, then it turns out that someone else is holding too many strategic strings and, and we rethink it. Um, yeah, it's frustrating to know we had it and we let it go and now it's you know even more expensive to bring it back again but i think you know we learn we learn hopefully what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history hopefully that's not the case uh, hopefully we can actually learn something from history um the, the um i guess in a lights out factory situation which ultimately the nirvana case i don't know if it's really possible but the, you know, obviously mm -hmm. everyone talks about lights out factory you know if we connect everything together and we have enough automation and, and information flow we don't need people there. I don't think they mean that quite literally, but we need less people there. In that scenario, though, every country is pretty equal because we all pay the same amount of money for the equipment, you know, give or take. Yeah. Maybe real estate could be a little less or more in certain areas, but that's not the driving force. The driving force is all that technology plus people. And as you said, with the gap uh, lowering, uh, you know, the, the tide raises all boats in countries that are exploited I don't mean that in a negative term, but companies that are exploited for their low labor tend to um, raise the standard of living for the low labor. So it's temporary. It's a temporary exploitation. Mm -hmm. And then they find another country that's even cheaper. And then that country gets, you know, rises up. And then they, you know, they go all over the world until every country is, is, has got a, a middle class now and they have cars and they, they took all their money and they built freeways and people want to drive on them. And, and, yeah. you know, they want to wear, designer clothes and carry around MacBook Pros and all that stuff, and iPhones and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. I guess it does happen um, over, over time, which is a good thing, I, I suppose. Uh, what's the future for, as we get close to wrapping up here, what's the future for connected factories, do you think? What, what is the uh, Dave Trail crystal ball show? You know, I talk to a lot of customers um, that are Arch customers and we do a lot of work with EMS companies. In fact, six out of the top 10 uh, EMS companies in the world are Arch customers, and we manage you know, thousands of machines for them. And one of the things that I keep on hearing is, even as I approach more and more OEMs as opposed to EMS companies is, well, we do some production here at our facility, but we do a lot of production at X EMS company, um, and then you drill down a little bit deeper, and you find out that the OEM has actually purchased the equipment that is at this EMS company, and it's their asset, but it's it's operated by their people under their roof, etc. And they want to have more visibility into what's taking place at some of those EMS companies. And there's there's been a lot over the years as far as being able to take some of these KPIs and dashboarding and things like that and making it shareable from one factory to another within an organization. 
I think there's going to be a certain degree of transparency that takes place across organizations and across supply chains. Um, and I really think that that, well, initially some people will protest that because they're not necessarily going to want to open their kimono and, and be able to show some of these low efficiency numbers that we talked about and things like that. But ultimately, I think this visibility and this connect connectivity, um, not just of technology, but connectivity of organizations working together, I think is something that we'll see more and more of in the future. And uh, I'm in fact looking forward to that. As am I. Dave Trail, um, talking from Hawaii. Um, I wish I was there with you once again, but um, we'll have Come to settle out. for digital technology. I will be there in February uh, at the uh, SMTA PANPAC. There's a plug for the SMTA PANPAC conference, uh, micro symposium, microelectronics symposium. Uh, thank you very much for being my guest today. Um, you helped me fill my knowledge gap of Industry 4.0. I knew it um, from a 30,000 foot level. Um, I feel like I'm I'm not quite at ground level yet, but I'm I'm down you know, at least above the weeds now. So I uh, thank you for uh, filling in some of those gaps for me and making it more than just a buzzword. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you, uh, if not before, in, in Hawaii in, uh, in February. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you again. Same here. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and in Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with the K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.